Photoshelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, February is Black History Month, and last week, the Gordon Parks Foundation announced their 2022 Fellow in Art recipients, which include textile artist Bisa Butler and one of my favorite photographers, Andre D. Wagner. If you're not familiar with his work, you really need to look it up. He moved to New York in 2011 to pursue a master's in social work and ended up pursuing photography as a form of self-expression. He shoots a lot with Tri-X, develops his own film, is using Leica cameras uh, for the most part. His first book that came out a few years ago is called Here for the Ride and documented the NYC subway when he was going to and from work over the course of three years. And I was looking at some of the photos from that book last night and just comparing it to the work that Bruce Davidson for his subway book back in the 70s. Mm. And it's kind of a, it's a startling difference, not only because Bruce went down into the subway to photograph for the book, whereas Andre was just going to work every day, but also sort of the economic condition that the subways were in at the time. See his photos of people committing crimes and people being um, uh, mugged on the on the train. Whereas Andre's mm-hmm. stuff is just like, you know, there's more joy, there's more light streaming through the, the cars. Um, it has such a different feel and it's such a wonderful book. And if you look at his Instagram feed, which we'll link to at our blog at blog.photoshelter.com, there's such a timelessness to his street photography. And I've admired his work for so, so, so long. It's just wonderful. That is awesome. It's interesting to hear you compare the work to Bruce Davidson just in that exact, well, Andre was taking the subway to go to work every day and that was his approach, whereas Bruce was going on the subway to take photographs every day. I mean, there you go. There's like two separate, very different approaches and it really does show in the work. And also, yo, Andre has some amazing street photography, but he also has this amazing kind of like incredibly glossy commercial Um, side to him as well. And some of the more uh, commercial projects that he has done include W Magazine's 2021 annual director's issue, which featured Viola Davis and her family. It's an incredible spread. I purchased the magazine, which I hadn't purchased a W Magazine in years and years, (laughs) but I was like, this is amazing. And he also did the key art for Universal Studios movie Queen and Slim. Um, which just also was like super striking and great. So he's doing this great mixture of like making bank on stuff like the Universal Project, I, I hope anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, the, these beautiful street photography images. The Gordon Parks Foundation Fellowship is a $25,000 prize, which I assume will help him uh, complete his editing of a seven-year-old body of work titled New City Old Blues. So I assume there'll be a book project and an exhibition at some point with that. But congratulations to Andre on a well-deserved fellowship. Longtime contributor to the blog, a photo editor, Jonathan Blaustein, did a really fascinating post where he walked readers through the process and the cost, most importantly, of publishing a photo book. And this kind of bubbled up on my Twitter feed because a lot of photographers were sharing the article being like, this is extremely accurate. So that got me curious. Okay, so many photographers are like, this is correct. I'm like, okay, well, then what is it about? And one thing that Jonathan notes at the top is that the demand for photo books from the collector class has not grown in concert with the supply. So very few photo books actually sell well. So he's saying that out the gate. So then you're like, okay, well, then why why would I need to make a photo book? And he points out that 
that he does a lot of consulting with photographers and he notes that every photographer that he's talked to has considered their book a marketing objective, right? And that, you know, it might not make you a ton of money, but it you can benefit from making a book by getting more opportunities, potentially getting more jobs, by having relationships built, just by sending your book out. So Jonathan walks through the process basically from like ideation to marketing the book. And then he kind of delves into the costs of making a book where he's talking about the cost difference between like a DIY zine, which you can create on a budget of like hundreds of dollars, like, and that can obviously vary, but not over a thousand. And then he talks about a self-produced soft cover print on demand, which can cost in the high hundreds. Um, or the low thousands. And then he just kind of goes up from there. And it's interesting to hear him talk about the different costs and what goes into it. And really, his main idea is that you have to have a really good reason for making the book and really thinking through, why am I making this particular book? Alan, did you get a chance to read the article? I sure did. I I really enjoyed the insight that he shared in this particular article. I also thought that, uh, you know, he referenced a an Aperture article called Has the Photo Book Become More Interesting Than the Photographs Themselves? Written by Clement Chirot, who's the Joel and Anne Ehrenkrantz Chief Curator of Photography at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York, who talks about how photo books as artistic objects in and of themselves have become valuable. Uh, And there's also some mention about how, you know, early in the digital photography revolution, people thought that photo books were going to go away. And there were a few pundits who said, no, actually, we think it's going to make it easier for people to publish. And therefore, we'll see sort of a resurgence of photo books, which is is exactly what happened in terms of, you know, the HP Indigo printer, which allows you to do, you know, MagCloud is is one of the services that allows you to cheaply print a photo magazine. But the, the Indigo printer also is the machine behind services like Blurb. So print-on-demand mm. books, which a lot of people have used to print books uh, either for personal reasons or for marketing purposes, where you can print a book for $20 or $200, depending on how many pages are in it, what size it is, what sort of cover options you want. So it really is fascinating to me. And I think Jonathan really hits the nail on the head. Having a point of view about why you want to do it in the first place and also mm-hmm. realizing that it can be a marketing vehicle and so it doesn't have to make you money as long as it's getting you exposure and jobs. Totally. In the Aperture article uh, by Chirot, he also mentions that in 1999, there were only about 100 publishers that were partially or fully devoted to photography internationally. And then over the course of the next 20 years, with a peak between 2011 and 2014, the article says around 300 more publishing houses for photo books were created. So... They're guessing right now there's something like 500 or so photo publishing houses out there. There are small imprints like Alex Soth's Little Brown Mushroom and a lot of other photographers who have a specific point of view have created small publishing houses. It's not so dissimilar from what we've seen on like the music publishing side, where because the cost of producing great music or popular music is also complemented with services like SoundCloud or uh, other tools that help you publish directly to Spotify. There's been a whole surge of small 
music publishing houses or quote record labels as as they're still referred to in in the industry, um, and not dissimilar from what we're seeing with publishing houses. So, you know, both aspects of the book publishing. Uh, concept that are covered by this article, both in terms of an object of art, and there's a lot of houses coming up to do it, as well as the book as a marketing uh, vehicle for photographers. Totally fascinating and definitely recommend that photographers check out the piece on a photo editor, which we'll link to on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. So I mentioned at the top of the show that February is Black History Month. February 1st, if you're listening to this podcast on the day that we're publishing it, is also the Chinese Lunar New Year. And I came across a piece oh. in The New Yorker about a curious little ledger book that was found in the collection of the California Historical Society 10 years ago. And the history is this. In 1892, Congress passed the Geary Act, which reauthorized the Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically disallowed immigration from China, even though a lot of Chinese had come over to help build the Continental Railroad um, and mine for gold, etc. The bill required Chinese to acquire certificates of residence— and then later, the certificates were required to have photos. So Thomas Geary, the legislator who sponsored the bill, explained, quote, all Chinamen look alike, all dress alike, all have the same kind of eyes, all are beardless, all wear their hair in the same manner. Now you sit down and write out a description of Chinaman, give his height, weight, the color of his skin, and the shape of his eyes. And after you've done it, what have you got? You have a description that will fit any other Chinaman you happen to run up against. So... <laughs> Clearly oh, wow. a very racist point of view <laughs> yeah. right from this author of this Geary Act in 1892. But as a result of that bill passing and this addendum to that bill requiring a photo in the town of Downeyville, California, a constable named John T. Mason maintained a ledger, a little red book filled with 176 Chinese living in the town with photos and descriptions starting in 1890. It was undoubtedly surveillance, not mm. unlike the facial recognition surveillance that we've talked about on the show many times before. But some academics also point out that the photos are probably the only traces of some of these people's lives. And the author really talks about how you can see some of the emotion in some of these photos um, of people that were young and old. Uh, in the ledger includes annotations of like, this guy was sent to China and will never come back. This person died. Erica Lee, a professor at the University of Minnesota, called these photos a form of racial control and terror and noted that they may be an early example of local law enforcement taking liberties to surveil immigrants. I just thought it was mm. fascinating that photos were being used in that way in the late 19th century. Yeah, I mean, sadly, another example of the camera being used as a weapon yeah. and in this case as a surveillance weapon and what Erica Lee said about these this you know type of photography being used as a form of racial control or t and terror that really that quote really struck me and I think sadly accurately describes what was happening in this very bizarre ledger this guy John T. Mason man what a freak <laughs> yeah. I mean you know, all the notes are just, they're, they're so well, like the handwriting is so carefully crafted and, and perfect. And it's just, yeah, it's creepy to look through. The article goes further to say that by 1890, more than 100,000 Chinese were living in the United States, but newspaper articles, letters, diaries, and other historical archives from the 19th century are almost entirely devoid of Chinese voices. 
So mm. even though this ledger struck me as kind of a historical oddity and curiosity, it kind of goes back to this age-old question of who gets to tell the story and therefore which stories get told. And so here's like a little constable in this small town deciding for surveillance purposes that he's going to take photos and describe these people. And in a sense, he's also the only storyteller of their lives. So it's kind of a bitter irony in some ways. I finished watching season two of Cheer on Netflix last night. Have you? Did you watch any of that? The cheerleading thing? Oh, I've, I've only seen season one. I haven't started season two. Well, a lot of people saw season one. And I will say, after reading into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, the, the, the thing that most people don't realize is that that Navarro College only competes against the other college in their division. Wait, what? Yeah. So just one other one other school? Exactly. So the fact that okay. they're like, oh, Monica won 14, you know, national titles. <laughs> She's really, you know, in, in any given year, one or the other school wins. So you have kind of like, you know, a 50-50 chance of winning. Hmm, okay, okay. What I found remarkable about it is that the director and creator, Greg Whiteley, really made the viewer care about this very, very niche part of life, you know, cheerleading competitions in this mm -hmm. very niche division that only has two colleges that compete. Yeah. But we get so locked into the stories that cheer becomes, that actual cheerleading becomes sort of incidental to the humans that are involved with it. And a lot of people know that one of the most charismatic characters uh, Jerry Harris was indicted on child pornography and child exploitation uh, uh, charges. So there's so much drama around that. And it just, it's, it, it reminded me again that, you know, an effective storyteller can make a general audience care about so much. And looking at this ledger, you know, the, the constable is the, the, the unintended storyteller of these people's lives. And yet he, he, he becomes the only storyteller the only written storyteller of these people's lives. So watching Cheer and then reading this story, I was like, huh, we got to keep... I love that you connected, somehow connected this Cheer, Alan. Yeah. I was like deeply disturbed and you're like, oh, it's like that cheerleading show on Netflix. Exactly, exactly. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention who the photographer was that the constable was working with, yeah. just since this is a photography show. It was actually his son-in-law, um, a photographer by the name of Decatur Dudley Betty. So that's who was doing the photographing. Yeah. And the article says the guy was coming through town. He didn't actually live in that town. He was right. rolling through town, took a set of photos, left, and then came back and took a few more. And that was it. So, you know, the, the traveling photographers we know happen, especially, you know, during the tintype, the tintype yeah. era. And, you know, this is the way it went because technology was expensive back in the day. There is a new photo blog in the year of our Lord, what? 2022. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Honestly, I, I wouldn't have expected this news, but I'm, I'm glad to see it. <laughs> um, there's a new photo blog called Photo Spark, and it was started by New York Times photo editor Gabriel Sanchez, who heads up the cooking and the food section of the Times. He used to write about photography at BuzzFeed, and I've been following his work for a long time now because when I was at Business Insider and whenever I needed ideas of what to write about, I would go check out his page <laughs> to be like, hmm, who's Sanchez looking at lately? Oh, this <laughs> looks cool. <laughs> um, so it makes sense that he's launched a blog. Uh, Photo Sparks is 
is interviews, reviews, photo stories, and opinions. And it kind of touts that it's written by photographers for photographers. The first few posts to launch the blog include an interview with Denver-based photo book publisher, Vera Ben Shop, which we now know because of a photo editor, it is very popular and doable to publish your own photo book. So maybe Vera is somebody that you can work with. Mm -hmm. It also includes a review of Alex Soth's exhibit, A Pound of Pictures. And then uh, PhotoSpark also has its own little vertical called the Camera Bag, which is monthly news regarding photo exhibits coming up and book releases and that type of stuff. I'm definitely going to be bookmarking it and keeping an eye on it. I love it. I think it's such a great compliment to a lot of the more popular photo websites out there, like the Petapixels and the DP reviews of the world, which tend to get Mm -hmm. a very certain flavor of photography that they cover or gear. And the comment sections get, can get really toxic at times. And (laughs) PhotoSpark strikes me as kind of like the slow food movement of photography in some ways, right? (laughs) Where it takes time to read through these interviews. Nobody's saying anything. There's no clickbaity titles. It's like, here's my process here's a really calm photo of something. It's not, you know, <laughs> hyper-produced. Um, I think it's a wonderful new website and, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what they come up with over the course of the year. When we first started talking about creating vision slightly blurred, we really wanted to talk about photography and its intersection with culture. I love a well-composed image taken by an experienced photographer who waits years and years for the right moment to come together. But I also love photography that isn't precious isn't necessarily beautiful, and isn't necessarily the decisive moment. We're talking about the snapshot or the vernacular photo. New York Nico, one of my favorite NYC-related instas, recently started a side account named at Lord Give Me a Sign NYC, which is just (laughs) photos of signs found in New York City along the lines of, you know, this meme of tell me you're from New York City without telling me you're from New York City. If New York Nico just transcribed the text of the signs, it just wouldn't have the same effects because you need to see that no. handwriting. You need to see the, the sign in, in the environment that it was posted with the janky tape or the, you know, the plastic covering that it's, <laughs> it's, it's encased in, um, the original locations. That's sort of the magic. Um, and there's a couple that I want to highlight. We're going to link to these on our blog. There's one that says, uh, to whomever took my box of COVID at home tests, I hope they are all false negatives. Stay safe. Right? It's kind of this <laughs> snarkiness to the message. Uh, another one on the on this, uh, shop door of a bodega that says, gotta pray, be back in five minutes. Um, and then another one that says, haven't stepped in dog feces lately? I have the answer. My dog shits on the floor and I'm too lazy to pick it up. And there's surveillance <laughs> photos of a woman walking her dog and the dog taking a poop on the sidewalk. <laughs> the signs are hilarious. The photography is terrible. And that to me is why it's kind of so amazing. You don't need to know anything about photography. You don't need to know about the history of photography, about photo gear to appreciate the story that's being communicated by these signs. What did you think of this new account? Oh, I love this. I'll definitely be giving it a follow. New York Nico, same, is one of my favorites. Yeah. And this is brilliant. This is way better than um, Guy with a Sign. You know that <laughs> one? That's already been... Yeah, like, well, you know, he did that for marketing purposes and then he gets, you know... Exactly. And this is like... Exactly. And this is all organic, real found signs. So I love it. I'm into it. I was trying to think whether these signs 
were truly unique to New York, you know, in terms of the mm. feel and kind of specifically what they were talking about. Obviously, a dog pooping on the sidewalk is sort of universal. I've seen it in different cities in the U.S. I've seen it in Paris, you know, I've seen it in, in, in many countries. So that's that's not unique. But there's something about the attitude. You might have seen yeah. this shirt, T-shirt being sold on Canal Street, Sarah, that says, uh, fuck you, you fucking fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And that was a shirt yes. sold on Canal Street that I was like, that shirt could, you would not find that shirt being sold anywhere else. No. And if, if you did find that shirt being sold somewhere else, it's because they saw it in New York and they're like, let's copy that. Right? So there is something kind of specifically about the in-your-faceness of New York signage or you know the meme phrases that that people want to get out i i just love it and and you know this whole movement of tell me you're from a place without telling me from the place and how photography is <laughs> used in that way it's just wonderful i loved it loved it so after observing photography for 139 episodes with vision slightly blurred and another 66 episodes with our original podcast i love photography sarah it's with some sadness and trepidation that i announce this will actually be the final episode of Vision Slightly Blurred. <laughs> oh, Alan, I like how you worded that as though you're just telling me for the first time. <laughs> Listeners, I swear I had, he gave me some heads up. <laughs> um, I, am, I am bummed, though, regardless, even though I knew the news, to be hearing it recorded on the show. And I just want to say that really what I loved about discussing photography on Vision Slightly Blurred was that it opened up my mind to exactly kind of what you mentioned, Alan, earlier in the show, that we really, we wanted to talk about photography and its intersection with culture and what what is worth and not worth discussing and analyzing. And what we came to the conclusion to was that on this show, pretty much all of it was is valid, you know, from Jonah Hill's like, like a bad, terrible Leica pictures to Emily Ratajkowski claiming that she would have some kind of ownership over photographs that she appears in um, to the images that make up these like weird memes that resonate across the internet and, and across different types of people to facial recognition all of it is photography and for some crazy reason I'm intrigued by it all and this show gave me a very good reason to observe it and dig deeper and discuss it with you Alan and explain to our listeners why on some level it all matters and affects the industry so I just want to thank everybody who has been listening to multiple episodes and Alan obviously for having good conversations for 139 oh plus God. episodes <laughs> You know, I, I remember when we were talking about bringing back the podcast like three years ago and how excited I was about talking about these issues. And we would meet weekly in my apartment to tape. And initially we were doing also a video component to it, which we did for about a year. Yeah. And then COVID hit and we cleared out in New York for a little while and we were doing it remotely over Zoom. And we've continued to do that. And, you know, through the cycles of up and down COVID and it's, you know, I mentioned it on the podcast several months ago, but I've only seen you once in person in like two years and two and a half years, which I guess is par for the course because that's, you know, like most people in the U.S. haven't seen a lot of people in, in that duration. But it's been such a joy yeah. to talk about these photo related issues on a weekly basis and something to sort of like look forward to as we tape uh, every Monday or mostly every Monday 
except when there's holidays and then we tape on Tuesday. <laughs> so thank you, Sarah, for, for having great conversations with me. Oh, you're so welcome, Alan. I'm glad to hear all that. Well, to the audience, even though the podcast is going away for now, you can still keep up with Photo Shelter and find more photography news and resources on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. And also give us a follow on Instagram or Twitter at Photoshelter. And of course, we'll continue to publish educational guides and webinars. So keep looking out for those announcements. But for now, to our dear audience, thanks so much for listening for 139 episodes. It's been a, a real pleasure. And who knows? You never know what the next iteration of the podcast might be in a year or two. So maybe we'll see you again. Maybe you'll hear from us again. And until then, take care. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.